You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right, guys, we might kick things off then. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people and the and the uh, Boomerang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered tonight. Uh, these people who have never ceded sovereignty remain strong in their enduring connection to land and to culture. And I'd also like to um, pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. So thanks to everyone for coming out tonight and a special thanks to the whole M Pavilion team for having us here. I'd also like to thank each of my 17 students that I got to teach this semester, three of whom are joining me this evening. Um, so my name's Andrew Kopolov. I'm a graduate architect and researcher. I'm a coordinator at uh, Melbourne Art Library, and I'm a design studio leader at uh, Monash Architecture. And joining me today, Ashira Baker, Sofia Sevenkova and Abizna Kanagasabasan. And Binche Zhang, who had planned to join us, was sadly unable to. In presenting their projects tonight, these student architects will illustrate how designers can engage with the topic of logistics. As they present, they'll also be referring to material in the booklet. So I, I strongly recommend you all get up and grab one, they're just on that table over there. Um, it's got all their work, go ahead. Um, and look, yeah, yeah. So before they present, I'll start by introducing the themes that we've been addressing throughout the semester. And then at the end, we should have around 20 minutes for discussion. So uh, it'd be great if you guys could come up with some questions or comments for us to go through together. <clears throat> this month, the M Pavilion theme is making visible. And the topic that my students and I have been making visible lately is logistics. Tonight we'll explain the role that architecture can play in this. But what is logistics anyway? Basically, it's the science of moving stuff around. It's the Amazon branding plastered on every kind of surface across the CBD. It's the food delivery riders carrying our takeaway in their brightly colored containers. And it's the rows of sky blue warehouses in Truganina and Dandenong South. In each of these cases, what we see is only the exterior of a vast infrastructural network that snakes across the city and the globe to bring us our goods. This network is legible in that we're witness to its branded graphics, but it's also highly opaque in that we rarely get to see what's going on behind these colorful surfaces. The times when logistic networks are visible is when they break down, which is, uh, this is also when their fragility is made clear. And this is exactly what happened earlier in the year with the Ever Given fiasco, and also much closer to home with the troubled vaccine rollout here in Australia. But this fragility isn't accidental. Instead, it's the designed result of privileging efficiency above all else. In the world of logistics, anything that isn't moving is considered a liability. And in order to move more stuff around more quickly, distribution networks are designed to be ever leaner. This has led to developments like just-in-time technology, where companies store fewer and fewer items themselves and instead have stock brought in only as consumer demand requires. This means there's very little buffer in stock levels, which makes these networks more fragile and prone to disruption than ever before. So here's hoping you've already done your Christmas shopping. Uh. <laughs> Delays are the least of our problems, though. 
The repercussions of this emphasis on speed and efficiency can be also devastating for social conditions and for the environment. Workers in big-name logistics companies are typically employed on low-paid, precarious contracts with their performance monitored down to the second. For these workers, the pace of work is set by software which optimizes out every opportunity to rest. And it's this widespread exploitation which facilitates the apparently smooth flow of goods. So hopefully we can agree that these issues are important and even pressing, but what do they have to do with designers? For logistics companies, architecture serves the practical purpose of alleviating friction and minimizing choke points. But in our class, we wanted to see whether logistics buildings could do more than that. The idea we were testing was whether making a logistics network pub more public could start to challenge the opaque and hyper-efficient qualities of infrastructure in general. We began the semester by analyzing Australia's three biggest retailers, Bunnings, Amazon Australia, and Woolworths. We looked at the design and the operation of their supply chains from the scale of the package right up to that of the global transport network. What was striking was that in each of these companies have their major Victorian distribution center in the same 1.5 square kilometers of Dandenong South. So this neighborhood became our site, and each student was tasked with designing their own distribution center in Dandenong South. Each of their buildings had to include areas for the storage, sorting, and dispatch of goods, as well as for some kind of public amenity. With this amenity seen as an interface between the logistics company and a public of their choosing. This meant that the, inter the internal organization of these buildings became a real focus, as did determining the line between front of house and back of house. Each student chose to deal with a different type of inventory. The four projects in the booklet deal respectively with the distribution of e-waste, textiles, information, and auto parts. And these four sets of inventory lent themselves to four different types of public amenity. Shearer's e-waste facility includes a makerspace for local tinkerers. Sophia's textile house has educational facilities and room for public talks. Bingja's information archive is a multi, also a multimedia library for Melbourne Southeast, while Abbey's repair shop and auto parts distributor includes office space and classrooms. Each of these projects can also be understood as part of an expansive network rather than as a standalone building. Other students dealt with themes like overstocking, when a, when a retailer chooses to stock more than is necessary to ensure supply chain resilience. One student looked at the prospect of renting out furniture and building materials, while another looked at creating a specialized warehouse for Facebook Marketplace. These and the rest of our projects can be found online uh, if you scan the QR code in there or if you go to flow-state.one. As a class, we also benefited, benefited from generous talks by Francesc Ruiz, Guillermo Fernandez Abascal, and Cream Projects. The class was also influenced by the work of Claire Lister and Francesco Marullo, who I, this, this is work I, I really recommend that anyone interested in these topics goes and checks out. Designing a logistics center might be seen as a purely technical exercise and something that needn't concern creative designers. But what we're suggesting is that these are exactly the types of buildings and the types of issues that architects and urban practitioners should be engaging with. Our thinking is that if distribution could be turned into a civic process, it might start to shift how we think about the flow of goods. And with Amazon already operating hundreds of brick-and-mortar stores across the US and the UK, there's a real need to imagine logistics differently. The projects you're about to see speculate on forms of infrastructure which might challenge notions 
of hyper-efficiency and hyper-convenience. They're also about having empathy for all the unseen logistics workers who help connect us to the things that we want. As a building typology, the, logistics, the distribution center is fairly new, which gives architects room to experiment with the parameters of what such a building could be. Long before distribution centers, there were granaries, which in ancient Egypt and Sumer would function as, food, as both food storehouses and as banks. The earliest recorded writing ever found was used to keep track of quantities of produce received at and distributed from these granaries. Which makes, and which makes you think, like, if an innovation as important as writing can come out of a granary, then what kinds of things might develop from the distribution center? So now I'd like to pass it over to Shira, who's passionate about commercial architecture and how it can be used to improve the socioeconomic, improve socioeconomic conditions in Australia. Shira's project looks at tinkering culture and e-waste and visibility. And however to you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Shira. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, just going to get right into it. So on September 24th, the new iPhone 13 was released. Now, I'm not sure how many of you ran out to quickly update your perfectly functioning smartphone, and nor am I here to mock you. However, I am interested in what has happened to that pre-existing device of yours. Whilst many sell or pass on their outdated phones, computers, cameras, and other forms of technology, an astounding 75.8 million tonnes of e-waste is produced on a yearly average, with at least 27% of that being sent to landfill despite being banned. E-waste is also responsible for 70% of toxic chemicals found in landfill. With all this in mind, I wanted to come up with an architectural opportunity that turns commonly neglected e-waste into something that can benefit society by contributing to a circular economy. To begin, I want to examine one of the most powerful and commonly found forms of e-waste, the motherboard, and how this can inform the visibility of logistics and architecture. The motherboard, with its intricate connective detailing and circuitry, is systematized like Amazon's Dandenong South Distribution Center. Without the power of advanced technology, the center does not function efficiently. Likewise, without the power... Sorry. <laughs> without the... Without all the elements of the motherboard, a computer lacks an ability to function. However, the constant need to chase efficiency has led Amazon to overheat the motherboard, pushing boundaries of technological advancements over humans, creating a power-hungry company whose successful e-commerce processes are opaque. Therefore, in creating an ethical competitor to Amazon, I have recycled my iPhone by tinkering with the notions of the motherboard to create recircuitry, a work environment in which existing technology is reconfigured to benefit society and humanity, not just efficiency. As seen on page seven of the booklet, an urban analysis revealed that the neighborhoods adjacent, adjacent to Dandenong South have far less art and craft businesses than Dandenong South itself. This information reveals the craft and tinkering nature of Dandenong, setting it up as the perfect location to create an environment for change. Recircuitry aims to leave a valuable trace in the existing polluted urban environment through creating networks between existing recycling locations, recircuitry drop-off points, as well as surrounding creative industries, contributing to the convenience of the e solution. So you've got your old iPhone, no one to give it to, or it doesn't function efficiently. What do you do with it now? Instead of scrambling on the internet to find one of the already limited supply of cancelled e-waste bins, recircuitry makes this process easy for you. Recircuitry drop-off points will be, as seen on page 12 of the booklet, will be scattered throughout the city and nearby technology stores, allowing members of society to donate technological elements that will later be refurbished and resold. Going back to the motherboard, the internal layout of recircuitry, as seen on page number eight and nine, resembles the layouts and function of the motherboard. Tinkering, tinkering with its inherent notions of concealment Recircuitry aims for a distribution center that fosters connectivity and transparency in all its processes. Elements such as the CPU become exposed, acting as a core area that unites shipping and arrival logistics processes, creating an efficient and unison environment as opposed to the previously all-powerful authorized computer element. Additionally, the PCI, which makes up the storage area, becomes emphasized as an important and towering element in recircuitry, carrying all important products that support the manifesto of tinkering and craft. Continuing on from notions of connectivity, Recircuitry hosts an on-site makerspace that is available to the greater public, making the process of recycling your phone more fun, relatable, and accessible. 
The makerspace allows for repurposing of e-waste and brings together skills and expertise from creators of many occupations. Through the implementation of a makerspace that utilizes waste as a form of innovation, Resurgatory can publicly shed light onto the processes and opportunities of repurposing e-waste, transforming it from an emergency of the future into a new possibility. Unlike the architecture of Resurgatory, which stands as a refined, clean shed, the makerspace is distinguished by the messiness of the activity that takes place within it. Tinkered elements within the building, together with the tinkered pipes that can be altered and placed on the exterior of the building, contribute to the tinkering culture, which sets the centre apart from other shed-like buildings in the area. The decision to opt for a clean shed aesthetic means that Resurgatory concept can easily be implemented in any urban environment, with the differing feature of each building being the waste of that area, which makes up the waste wall and tinkering feature of the building. The on-display facade of the Resurgatory distribution centre, as seen on page 11 of the booklet, reflects the exposed nature of the tinkering culture involved in redeveloping e-waste. Unlike the traditional motherboard, which is encased and hidden from day-to-day -day users, the Resurgatory facades and processes are to stand on display. Structural elements are inverted and placed on the building exterior, allowing the structure to become the architecture. In this way, the exposed structure acts as a visual reminder of the tinkered motherboard, something which is typically concealed for aesthetic reasons, transformed into a beautiful system of logistics and design. Integral to Resurgatory is a glass waste wall which acts as a visual representation of the excessiveness of e-waste. All toxic and impure waste will enter directly in the ground floor maker space, strictly for supervised staff only. After a cleansing and sorting process, all waste materials will be brought to the public maker space via a lift, giving all the materials a second chance at life. All non-toxic materials which can't be used in the maker space will then travel along suspended conveyors, making their way to the waste wall. Over time, this waste wall will build up and be emptied every year in the chance for the materials to have a second life contributing to the circular economy of Resurgatory. By putting waste flows and the processes that comprise Resurgatory on display for onlookers and workers alike, Resurgatory serves as a reminder of how technology can be used in a positive and transparent way. Resurgatory therefore aims to, com aims to beautify the commonly neglected e-waste, creating a second life for technological products, ultimately contributing to the urban and the people which inhibit it. Therefore, Resurgatory explores the complexity and hidden elements of the motherboard in relation to e-waste. Through an inversion of these elements, Resurgatory creates a more purpose-driven use of technology, establishing an environment that fosters shared knowledge, connection, and community. Now, the next time you rush to get your new iPhone, consider Resurgatory as your one-stop shop for bettering the environment while simultaneously reaping the benefits of your new device. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, Shira, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about so a core part of your project is, is visibility, right? And uh, visibility as a form of publicness. Um, so maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how you see those two things as being different and, and how they're different in your project, yeah. Yeah, so when I hear the word visibility, I automatically relate it to a painting, where a painting obviously holds lots of meaning, but it's generally used as a tool to understand this meaning behind it, whereas um, publicness usually in architecture refers to a space to host like any activity within it or for an experience. Um, so with Resurgatory, I've hinged on the ideas, like taking notions from visibility and publicness together. So I know that like visibility in itself can't change everything, but by combining visibility and publicness in my project, I just hope that it will better the environment. That's all. Awesome. Thank you. Next, we've got Sophia, who is a student architect at Cox and who has a particular interest in sustainable design and development. Sophia is going to talk to us about how architecture can help to reduce textile waste. Take it away. Um, yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Sophia, and I'm very excited to be here today and present my final year free studio project that explores the relation between architecture and the logistics in the context of Melbourne. So to start with, I think nowadays for most of us, clothes are more than a piece of fabric. It is something that is used to express our identities, how we feel, and somewhere social status. So as a being, additionally, it contains some cultural and specific elements that relate to the, our backgrounds um, and the country we grew up in. 
So I think that Melbourne is a great example, actually, of how a city and citizens are distinct in the energy and ambience with large and colourful murals along the streets and eye-catching expressions of design that could be seen for the city. So being an international and multicultural city, Melbourne is defined by the development of its own fashion sense through the lenses of cultures that are unique to the city. But as we all know, everything has two sides and next to sustainable local and ethical brands, we can actually see the constantly growing industry of fast fashion. So it's actually a very serious um, and interesting topic because Australia is the world's second largest consumer of textiles, buying an average 27 kilograms of clothing and other textiles each year. So obviously there's been a transformational shift in the way we source, use and discard our clothing which has a major social and environmental impact. So fast fashion produced from global supply chains is driving excessive purchasing of affordable new items. And surprisingly, as a city with a high trend on thrifting, only 15% of these clothes actually get sold again in local secondhand shops. So this really helps us to realize the scale of the problem that Melbourne and other cities across the world are facing today. So it becomes obvious the need for reducing the clothing consumption and the footprint of textiles, learning more about the process of clothing creation to value them and make running repairs to extend their lifespan. So my project Calsignia proposes a way to rethink the fast fashion industry in the context of Melbourne and its surroundings. Melbourne's multicultural citizens donate their unique textiles and clothing to local distribution, to local uh, shops that are then distributed to Calsignia, from where they are recycled, upgraded with new materials and converted into new fabrics and are further distributed to the manufacturers in a range of industries. So the building's design itself that could be seen is a showcase of how architects, designers and communities can collaborate to create something more than a building that represents the successful use and reuse of textiles and clothing. Um, on page 16, you can see that Calsigna meets people with a rather standard structural system that is overlaid with different pieces of textile collected from the city, creating a unique skin pattern that reflects the identity of Melbourne and its citizens. So created by collaborating with local Melbourne artists, the space provides people with a new sensory and tactical experience, thereby rethinking Melbourne's approach to fashion. Um, but how does this work in practice? So, in practice, this involves continuous work to improve all stages of the product's life cycle, from design, raw material production, manufacturing, transport, storage, marketing, and final sale, to use, reuse, repair, remake, and recycle of the products and its components. So, the public, uh, the public aspect of the projects include hosting events and workshops that help to educate people about the clove, about the production, and also provide space for community to explore different cultural um, engagement between the visitors. So following the trends of Melbourne's uh, fast, uh, creative fashion minds, we believe that it's important to put art and fun and peace into the pieces of clothes that Calsignia creates. So this involves creating dynamic environment clothes that are items that are driven by Melbourne's aesthetic. And of course, the same aesthetic could be seen in the architecture of the building. So the arrangement of the interior spaces that could be seen on page 19 is shows the balance for the need for highly efficient clothes and material production with a desire to introduce play and interaction into the process. Each space has specific design and architecture that represents the unique processes happening inside, from storage to space to garment production. So as could be seen on the renders on page 20, uh, through the play of textures, colors and materials, Visitors explore a new dynamic space that takes through the process of clothing creation. Through simple interactions and giving this process a more play and playful environment, the building shifts people's attention from more global social problems uh, to rethink the building, to rethink the role and importance of clothes and buying decisions they make. This kind of approach helps us to educate and interact with more big problems on a more simple basis and everyday scale. So, in conclusion, overconsumption or donating and recycling clothes is not an excuse for overconsumption. The change needs to happen in the way people see and think about clothes. So, Melbourne is already on a right track to rethink the role of fashion. So, we can see a lot of local fashion brands, ethical emerging currently. But still, there is a 
big social problem that needs to be solved. So by collaborating, we can push this initiative forward and lead the fashion into a new era. Thank you for listening. Thanks a lot, Sophia. Uh, something we talked a bit about in class that I think your project touches on is designing at different scales, right? And it would be great if you could talk to us a bit about how someone would experience your project differently from the highway, from up close, from these different scales of interaction. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so definitely the project operates on micro and macro scales. So on a macro scale, it creates an absolutely new urban precinct in the area of South Dandenong. So it promotes the development of green areas, of new workspaces that would probably rethink the current conditions of people working in other warehouses on the side. Also, it promotes kind of, um, a new type of architecture for warehouses. So it definitely creates a new urban direction, a new development for the, yeah, for the urban development in that area. Um, so the building quite stands out in terms of the scale with other warehouses. So of course, this is done to attract more visual attention to the building and make a person interested in what this is. And the more people approach us to the building from a distance, the more it opens up to the visitor. So you can see the more you come closer, the more the green area, the colorful murals, the outdoor public space opens up and people can start actually exploring the building on a more individual and personal level. So speaking about micro scale person, basically the qualities of texture material like dictate how the space is going to be experienced. So it actually helps to promote the idea of creating a more personal connection with items to avoid a reconsumption and more like buying decisions that are not really good for, not really useful for a person. So, yeah. Thanks very much. Next in the booklet, you'll see the work of Bingje, who sadly couldn't make it tonight and sends her apologies. Um, but Bingje's project is unique in the class in that it deals with the flow of information rather than the flow of physical goods. Uh, so her project looks at how to store and distribute this information in a way that's accessible uh, with, her with her building using novel approaches to circulation, which moves both people and information around at the same time. So moving on, we have Abby, who sees the built environment as a reflection of civil society and as a tool for political agency. And Abby's going to talk to us about labor flows and how architecture can respond to the prospect of automation in the transport and the delivery industries. Take it away, Abby. Hi, I'm Abby. It's great to speak with you all tonight at Talks. I'll be presenting my project from this past semester, a logistics and labor central in Dandenong South. It came off the back of a group study of Amazon's logistics network in Vic, southeastern metro region. In the study, we quickly realized that e-commerce giants like Amazon and more broadly supply chains themselves rely on networks of exploitation. This can take on the form of violent material extraction to make goods, offshore de facto labor colonies for manufacturing, and precarious contract work for last mile delivery and warehouse picking, just to name a few. Yet these gory details of supply chains are largely ignored for the sake of maintaining their facade as efficient, smooth functioning facilitators of convenience. The basis for the logistics in Labor Central came from this realization and chooses to champion a strengthening of labor power and logistics worker solidarity in response to this doctrine of efficiency no matter the cost. The physical starting point for the project was a massive approximately 38,000 square metre warehouse of Viridian glass at our sign site of 5195 Cranes Road in Dandenong South. A set of four varying length adjoined sheds shrunken and tweaked that remained the formal container for the project throughout. The logistics worker is chosen is who the project is for due to the agency they have within the arteries of supply chains. Some recent examples of this are truck drivers refusing to offload cargo in solidarity with John Deere workers striking for better pay and benefits a couple months ago. 
as well as Italian dock workers declining to load arms headed for Israel early in the year. So supply chains aren't all doom and gloom. Logistics and Labor Central is a two-stage project. Stage one of the project offers auto part distribution and repair alongside public use office and organizing space. Stage two is a worker-run drone distribution service that functions in parallel with the Labor History School. From page 30 to 37 in your booklets, stage one is highlighted via red elements in all the drawings and stage two with blue. Frames are also used to project different points in time and show the multiple stages in some of the drawings. Firstly, stage one. Stage one seeks to serve logistics drivers, the nearby multitude of auto shops and the general public. It comes as a response to contracted gig work in logistics. Think Uber or Amazon Flex. Shoveling vehicle maintenance onto the worker and away from the employer. In this stage, heavily subsidised auto repair and parts distribution are provided to logistics drivers of all kinds. From the Amazon Flex driver to the interstate truck driver. These services then charge at a normal rate to the general public and small business would be used to offset costs and raise money for, the, for labour organising. Organizing. Arrival and dispatch occurs in the western half of the building. Repair bays line the centre. The eastern quarter houses an open common area, a dining block with a second floor holding a small library and organising space, and finally two blocks of office spaces. This eastern quarter is free to hire for the broader public. Stage one acts as a central organising hub for logistics workers while providing worthwhile services. Now on to stage two. Stage two seeks to be a near future expansion, aiming to tackle the question of the future of logistics work at, one, the prospect of the superseding of the automobile in the later stages of the delivery, and two, the need for broader labour power in the face of automation and an increasingly atomised labour. This stage is imagined as an outgrowth from the worker organisation from stage one, leading to one, a worker-run distribution service as an anticipatory step in regards to auto delivery becoming less relevant alongside a labour history school that seeks to form the basis for building labour power in a broader sphere. A labour history school was chosen to oppose labour as a solely productivist activity and reclaim and strengthen it as both a venture that exceeds an economic function as well as an avenue for exercising collective power. Exterior walls are removed, vehicle access is reduced, a drone depot added. On rails lecture caddies borrow from the crane to stage one. Gazebos are set up where repair bays once were. Office spaces become classrooms, expanding with ground and second floor extensions. Walkways then connect these classrooms to a much larger library that places itself atop the distribution storage bases beneath, underneath. I think the takeaway from the project for me was that imagining architectural proposals for challenging situations might benefit from splitting or breaking them into smaller pieces. A piece for the here and now that can be thought of without much fantasy and a piece or pieces that are only a bit further away and only a little bit more hopeful in aspiration. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Abby. I really enjoy the way that your project deals with these different timelines. Um, but another thing that's, I'd say, unique about uh, your project in terms of what we've seen this evening is that you were dealing with an existing building, right? So your project is sort of adapting something that already exists. I wondered maybe you could talk to us a bit about that particular building and, and why it was important that you did an adaptation project. Thanks. So... So Dandenong South is kind of like a suburb which kind of acts as like a transitory place where all the services for like the adjoining suburbs prosperity like lurks. And in that suburb, um, you've got sheds, you've got a bunch of sheds, like whether that's for steel fabrication or whatever. Um, one of the main functions of, of Dandenong South is a bunch of repair shops, auto shops. And I thought like, if you have all these auto shops there as like um, sheds, why not just grab a shed our site that we were given was a shed in itself and like I didn't want to lose that typology. So I decided to um, just rock with that Viridian glass shed. Um, yeah, um, and it's a central location in the suburb. Um, I think the first page of that map is like that big map and then 
it's pretty much center, um, smack back in the middle. And then, um, yeah, I think that shed is a nice formal constraint for like keeping the whole like idea of a warehouse, um, of a distribution center. Um, uh, besides that, like you can see like 20th century warehouses as being like something that just keeps going on um, for multiple uses. Like I think one of the earliest earlier examples that um, we looked at was like Shira found a TAFE in South Australia, which was like um, came off the back of I think it was a Chrysler or Mitsubishi factory from like 1964, and in 2014 that was um, turned into Tonsley TAFE by the South Australian government. So yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. So. Now we'd like to hear from you guys, basically. Uh, so if anyone has any questions or comments, you can either yell them out. You can go and stand next to this microphone over here. Uh, if anyone hasn't done so yet, please go ahead and grab it yourself a booklet. But yeah, is anyone? Over to you guys. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly have a question for you guys. I, I'm not sure if you guys have given this much thought, but the things we've been dealing with were really private infrastructure, right? So we were looking at retail companies. Um, and I wondered, do you feel like there are any kind of public infrastructures that, that, could, that these kind of amenities could easily be inserted into? What do you think? So, I mean, a, a train station, for example, like, is that more likely to have some sort of a amenity than other? I mean, for example, there's, you know, getting it, I tried to go to the toilet before, that was hard enough, as in, uh, putting a toilet, you know, more, more train stations could have toilets for a start. Um, not sure what do you, th what you guys think. Yeah. This is kind of like a prepared answer. It's not prepared, but like, it's a project from like um, RMIT. It was like by Liam Oxlade, and it's um, taken a post office and turning that into like a public place. And it's like a post office, like the the place where all like the boxes and stuff are like stored, and taking that and then turning that into an um, what was it, an event space. So like, there's children's birthday parties in the middle of like a distribution office, and like that's always I always remember that. Yeah. Rob, go ahead. Do you want to jump up on there? Congratulations on the um, on the topic. It's um, great that you've shone a light on um, this particular issue. I was interested to understand was a fundamental premise of the project that you had to work with the typology of the logistics centre, i.e., the shed and the, uh, if you like, rigorous organisational uh, rectilinear arrangements of that uh, or not, part one of the question. And part two, if not, did any of you think about how you could use um, that product of, of the waste and, uh, to make the container, and I know you did in part um, as a decorative device, but to make the container and I suppose what would you do to disrupt the orthogonal and, um, if you like, um, anti-human um, characteristics of, or what did you observe as anti-human that you would want to disrupt? Uh, if you had your magic wand in, how you might reimagine the experience of uh, this um, place, logistics uh, process into the future. Thank you very much. Those are some, some big ones there. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for those. Do, do any of you guys have any thoughts? Each of you, uh, you know, dealt with the conditions that Rob excellently described. Uh, yeah, what do you think? I mean, 
I already forgot what half that question was, but um, for my specific project, I didn't want to break away from that rectilinear typology because I wanted it to be like this clean shed aesthetic and then you'll see the e-waste being produced and that is sort of a lesson to learn. Like you see the ramifications of e-waste and I wanted that to be the standing factor of my distribution center. So yeah, I use like visibility and like a display of e-waste as my way of representing that. Um, I guess in my case, it's quite interesting because for mid-semester, I had a very organic, very kind of parametric architecture happening to show the continuity of the process from how it comes, from how clothes come into the distribution centre and how it's like recycled, upgraded and then further distributed. But after mid-semester, after rethinking the process of clothing production and understanding how important it is to think about each phase, um, I decided to go again with this orthogonal more and make each space very, in a way, unique and represent their own qualities. So I guess this also continues the idea that um, the textile is actually used in the space. It's not as, like, obviously it creates the atmospheric qualities of the space, the interior um, spaces, but it's also used as a construction material process and it's also further distributed to different manufacturers. Like now we can see a lot of different projects uh, that use a lot of textile and a lot of this textile could be used from like from uh, second like second hand and clothing that we like find on this like from other people and yeah. Yeah, I guess there were a number of projects in the class that highlighted uh, where the idea was about building in a way that was quite uh, honest, let's say, and, and being quite direct about what you're building with and, and you know, exposing joints and exposing all of these kind of things uh, rather than, let's say, dressing it in, in some way. And so that was quite important. Uh, yeah, you had something there about the disrupting. Um, yeah. Sure. So just to commit that to tape, uh, what Rob's asking here is is about how to disrupt. If if the iconography of the shed is something dehumanizing, how do we disrupt that? How do we um, move away from that? And I guess <laughs> one answer, and it, it's not necessarily moving away from that typology, but for example, we looked at things like um, uh, sort of graphics even, you know, the way that putting a graphic on, on the front of a shed can actually start to impact mentality and this kind of thing. The way that, for example, in Sophia's project, a simple act of putting these sort of immaculate textiles up front can actually cause us to think about this shed in a new way. So I, I would say that it's not necessarily that rectilinear shed that needs changing, but it's, it's more... Um, what we do with it, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Go ahead, do you want it? Yeah, thanks. Hello. Uh, so I noticed across a couple of the projects, there was a bit closer. Can you hear me all right? I noticed a couple, across a couple of the projects, I saw the theme of the right to repair movement, uh, which if you haven't heard is allowing customers or authorised uh, repairer to fix their devices or fix their cars. Um, so I see this has some parallels with the, the John Deere strike, for example, where um, individuals weren't able to fix their own tractors or where people aren't able to fix their own iPhones unless they take them to Apple. Did either of the projects um, look into that right to repair movement or is that a little bit out of scope? Thanks. Um, it's not my project, but Cameron's project in our class did look at that. It was looking about um, renting, like um, renting as a 
renting products as a alternative to like just buying something and then just keep and then just like destroying it and then not destroying it, discarding it, but um, not directly in that. But with the John Deere thing, I think that's interesting about like um, how tractors have like copyright to them and like to their software. And I think I think the um, the the strike itself was just for like um, just for better pay and benefits, and it wasn't dealing with that, to my knowledge. But like um, I was still aware of that, and I think like that's something that's got to be dealt with in a project, but like not mine, sadly. <laughs> One thing I would add, uh, so thanks for the question, firstly. I mean, that's, it's interesting stuff, definitely. And I, what it makes me think about is the, I guess, the monopolistic quality of some of these companies and the way that, um, for example, Amazon and other logistics companies like that. So the, as, as many of us might be aware, there's been a lot of uh, supply chain delays recently, right? And some of these bigger companies that have the money to do so are able to do things like uh, charter their own planes. And it's this kind of exponential rise where Amazon can very, very easily start to um, outprice all of the sort of smaller scale retailers. And look, I mean, granted, it's not exactly the same as right to repair, but it is this thing about once you're in there and once you start having these hyper efficiencies and you start having a sort of you know, culture of uh, social and sort of, you know, social exploitation and extractive practices. Uh, it really allows you to get ahead in a way where you keep everyone out, everyone else out. Uh, and so that's a huge problem. And, you know, yeah. The, the, what we've presented are some speculations on how we might start to tackle that. Obviously, uh, we've got a while yet to... <laughs> Um, actually, just one last thing. I realised, like, I think maybe it's just because, like, I'm nervous, but that's exactly what the first part of the project deals with because, like, it's about Uber um, drivers, like, not having, like, their maintenance. Um, it's on them. It's not on their employer anymore. And, like, that kind of thing where it's, like, the employer should be the one who has to, like, um, look after the, I guess, the instruments for the labour and stuff. So now it's off to... The, um, person. So, yeah, I guess contract work and delivery, it kind of exploits that. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks. Josh, do you want to jump up on the... Okay. <laughs> That's a great question, yeah. So, uh, the question was, given that these are such big issues, uh, do you see your projects as being things that could be replicated. What's the, are they, yeah, can you iterate these things? Can there be others? What do you think? Um, yeah, I did touch on this in my presentation. I think there's definitely a long way to go with e-waste and the material one as well. But I think sticking necessarily with my, back to the clean shed, like rectilinear aesthetic, it's a very easy um, shape and building to replicate. So I don't think having, like, my building alone will solve the whole e-waste issue, but I think being able to replicate and I guess some, in some locations the e-waste wall might be filled and some won't, and that's a representation of the e-waste crisis in that area. Um, but, yeah, I think it can be replicated. Just not sure how yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with Shira. Um, basically, like... This is not something that is to come in the future. It already happens. And we can see a lot of uh, distribution centers that collect your clothes and then create new pieces of clothing out of it. I guess uh, speaking like about the project, the scale and the, all these spaces, they could, see, they could be seen as something really to be built in the near future or something like that. But... Um, there are different scales and how the same project can operate by having the same idea. And it's a matter of the communities and people being involved. And of course, getting like the government, the private companies, because I think that 
especially in these projects in my one, when I was doing research about the type of the company, about the shareholders, about who is going to be involved, who's going to collect all the waste. It's actually a lot of benefits for the government, for communities, for the councils, and for private companies who can invest money into getting into technology, finding solutions, how to get more organic and sustainable garments involved into production. And there are a lot of benefits to come to all of them. So it's a matter of bringing this closer to people and changing a bit the mentality of how we, again, see and consume clothes. Yep. What about you, Abby? Could this be repeated? Um, I think if it were to be repaired, I don't think you'd want to have, like, a bunch of schools, like, in every suburb or something like that. But, like, definitely... Um, maybe something to deal with um, starting with this kind of like, I guess, uberification, like that kind of taking that and then offering like some kind of partial solution and then building off that into something more like, um, more with a longer term vision. Yeah. 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 Thanks for the question. Um, so, I would say that we, we were focused on this sort of industrialized context to start with. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess the, the important part of that was that, as you said, there was all, there's all this sort of industrial elements already there. So you're dealing with a culture that's sort of pre-existing in a sense, this pre-existing industrial culture. One thing that some students were looking at were um, amending things like bus routes, you know, because, for example, for workers to get to that neighborhood, it's quite difficult. So if, if we as designers could start to tackle things like, well, how might you reorganize the bus route so that actually it's a bit um, more easy for these employers to get to work, those kinds of um, interventions start to hint at how you might take some of these ideas and apply them somewhere like here. Um, even if we didn't specifically look at how you would, uh, how you might do that here. Yeah, it's a good question though. Um, do you have a question? Um, I really love Thank you very much. So just to repeat that for people who might not have heard. Uh, sorry, sorry, don't you're all right. Um, the question, which was much more eloquently worded than I'll be able to do, was about the tension between the public and private spaces in, in these projects and whether in our class we were, and hey, tell me if I'm getting it wrong, but uh, whether we were, whether we had talked about the political economy and finally whether or not, whether these projects need this commercial element to them and whether it could have just been something entirely public. Is that right? What, what do you guys think? Um, definitely we had discussions, we had a lot of discussions, especially again in my project. Um, different people had different opinions obviously, so I guess the commercial part is quite crucial, especially when we're speaking about like some like a companies nowadays. So this, kind of, like, this couldn't be a purely public space uh, directed by the council. It should have commercial elements for people to have been interested in developing this area, pushing these ideas in different locations, uh, further across the state or the city, and it still needs to be able to self-sustain itself. And by having a limited or controlled commercial aspect, it helps again to kind of to bring uh, people, like investments in it and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, we definitely had a discussion with this tension between the public and the private, specifically my group with, we looked at Amazon and we looked at how Amazon has very little public engagement. Like you order your product or whatever you're ordering online and you get an occasional tracking and then it just comes and you don't, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on in the Amazon building. You don't even see the rider, they just leave it at your door. So we looked at how Amazon was lacking this public engagement. So that's why I came, like we included a publicness to our building. Um, yeah, I think like, for example, like mine, like a makerspace doesn't necessar necessarily need a commercial aspect. I think a makerspace 
sort of like those public libraries you see on the street can be anywhere and people in the neighbourhood can just come and build and do whatever they want there. But I think it's beneficial to have the commercial element to it. Like, as in the distribution centre can exist without it and the makerspace can exist without the distribution centre. But combining the two together allows everyone to see what's going on and breaks down this barrier that a company like Amazon previously had and allows for transparency. Um, yeah, just to agree, like, we constantly had this discussion of um, whether this thing is public because um, I think Andrew would ask us if we were, like, not having it public enough, he'd ask us, oh, can I just walk in as Andrew and say, hey, can I come in without paying, like, two bucks for a coffee or something like that? And then, like, the answer to that, like, I guess he wanted... I can just come in. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely a thing. Um, for me, it was like it, that um, aspect turned into you hire it. Like um, you hire it for free, but like it's like a roster, I guess. You put in your time and then you walk in. Um, mine is, I guess it's kind of commercial, but like I guess that money is intended to go into that, into that labour organising and furthering of like that labour history school. But, yeah, I guess kind of. I just wanted to add to that, um, in terms of sort of public and private, this is a little bit sort of tangential to what you've asked, but uh, the thing is that in terms of visibility of, of these things, right, you've got the capacity to order a jumper online and you might be told that jumper is going to arrive at 12 p.m. on Thursday, Right? So that's something that, that is knowledge, that's evident to the uh, retailer, to the purchaser, to the consumer. But then you get instances, for example, the company Lululemon, right? That's a garment, a garment company. There were these reportings of garment manufacturers working for Lululemon getting beaten, right? And the thing is the company... Uh, said, oh, we didn't know about that. We had no idea. And the thing is, they probably didn't, you know? So it's just very strange what things are visible and what things aren't visible and this sort of blurring of what's private and what's not. Yeah. Thanks. Talking about what's visible and what isn't, I was curious that none of you seem to mention or focus on health and safety and environmental. And I'm wondering if that wasn't in the brief or what considerations you have for that? That's a great point. Thanks a lot. Uh, so there were definitely other, other projects that weren't presented tonight which dealt more explicitly with environmental issues. Uh, and there, there had been this sort of long-running stream of... Uh, like Abby was saying, you know, not just being able to walk into any space. Some of these spaces people were dealing with, with where's my truck going to park, you know? Like, oh, it's great to have this facility that's open to children and things like that, but if, you know, these things don't really mix. So definitely health and safety was a, a big point as well. Uh, I wonder, did, did I, any of you want to talk about sort of environmental implications of your projects? Because I know it was something you each considered... Um, I guess in the context of Dandenong and South, there is a lack of green areas. So in a lot of the projects across, you could see recreating indig like indigenous vegetation of the site, um, giving more biodiversity into the urban space. But also um, the reality is that we have uh, only limited time where we can present our projects. So we need to be specific about what we're speaking about. And for most of us, our project was focusing on the logistics and networks and we had less time to consider about actual sustainable systems that go into the project. But I know a lot of us are using uh, materials that are recycled. Um, that, like in my project, it's all textile, all textile that is used, it's all again uh, recycled and upgraded. And of course, it, because it's a distribution centre and focuses on the waste that also comes from the nearby local side and further, um, uh, yeah, how to deal with waste, with other kind of waste from the side. Uh, do you want to... 
is it possible to sorry jump up over there and be thanks a lot is this working yes okay um so i guess my question you might not have an answer to but i was just curious in terms of uh like the technology industry the fashion industry especially um so many of the workers in that industry are increasingly like migrant workers um, and also lower socioeconomic background uh, people. And I was just wondering whether that was something you factored into your design or considered, you know, cultural language barriers um, of the workers that might be there. Great question. Thank you. I think this is related to our mid-semester project where uh, we had to, like, redevelop the current like warehouse of Amazon to consider the space for workers who are currently working there. It was Aaron, Abby and James's project. Um, how we thought about the current conditions of people who are working there. We did a research that most of the Amazon uh, workers, they basically don't have full-time employment, they have a minimal wage. So do you want to speak about a bit more about how we proposed um, our space for creating a more... I think we tried that, but I don't think, like, in that focus, it wasn't about migrant workers or, um, I guess, low, lower socioeconomic because it's kind of like precarious workers. Um, not even precarious, just like people who just are trying to get by. Um, and I guess we tried to do that by, like, um, by adding, like, a way to be at work beyond just work. Yes, yeah, so we designed um, a space for workers to escape from during the lunch breaks after work where they can spend time together away from the Amazon's directors, managers. And it was a space probably for creating, how do you call it? Um, Solidarity? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, um, Maybe another thing to add is, is, you know, design can't do everything. Can it? I mean, issues like migrant work, it's, these are sort of wicked problems that, that we can try our best to address, and I think that more of us should, but it doesn't mean that we're going to solve them. Uh, yeah, yeah. But maybe, maybe we can call it there. So thank you very much. Oh, so James, point, go point. ahead. If you, yeah, final Andy. question, please. Big fan, Andy. Um, <laughs> I guess a lot of factories... Um, exist as sort of isolated, um, if not follies in our sort of neighbourhoods. I guess a lot of the projects here do exist on a quite grand scale, however, are quite inward facing. And I was wondering whether the studio ever looked at um, integrating more public good, ever looked at the creation of neighbourhoods around the factories as, you know, has been held in precedence by Henry Ford's factories when they create neighbourhoods, I was wondering whether students were able to um, interrogate how they could possibly uh, provide benefit to Danong South through their own architecture. Because I think my cynical view is that you've changed sheds into decorated sheds without actually addressing the exteriority of your project. Like, like I think um, the previous question, looking at the square and keeping that utility as a square as your guiding um, strategy possibly doesn't really interrogate or adaptively re reuse the factory to a higher degree. Sure, thank you. Um, I can, for my project, I guess it was more of like a notional um, effect on the nearby buildings. I specifically with the waste wall that I had, I wanted it to be on the second level so you could see it driving by and specifically from all the other businesses and stores around the shed. So, for example, next to our site, there was like a lot of craft companies like marble, tim like marble bench tops and glass. We, like we were in an existing glass warehouse and there was a lot of craft stores and art stores. So it was more like a notional thing where if people see the ramifications of e-waste, but like waste in general, then hopefully they can implement change into their own um, workplaces. And you also put all these uh, yeah. distribution bins and there was a whole urban scheme that you developed, yeah. 
talking about you guys. I mean, you, you added all this. I've missed the question, sorry. <laughs> what, what does your project do to the neighborhood? I think it, I yeah. spoke about it, yeah, like creating an absolutely new urban precinct, rethinking the role of warehouses, of how they actually can have a positive urban impact on the site and just redefining the urban development of South Dandingham, yeah. I don't think mine did. I think Sophia's did it that the most, so, yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming out, everyone, and enjoy the rest of your night. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.